is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 213 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Icy Cedric, and we're talking all about how to write folklore-inspired fiction. First, to last week's question, which was, what are you going to complete in the final quarter of the year? Jack K. Boyle said, hopefully a short story I've been plugging away at, trying to cram another two, and Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which sounds super fun. Matt Goodall said, I have an unboxing video to film when my next books arrive from Ingram, something I haven't remembered to do in ages, so I'm actually really excited for this. I'll be doing a stripped back version of NaNoWriMo, not aiming for the full 50k, and hoping to write the second novella in in my gay romance novella series, which sounds awesome. This week's question is, what do you do for fun that isn't reading, writing or work? It's a question that has uh, come to life in this last week where I realise I may need to do something that isn't work (laughs) at some point and I don't think I remember how. So I would love to know what is it that you do for fun that isn't reading, writing or work? The book recommendation of the week this week is Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. Now, I have already influenced half of the Patreon Slack group to go and buy and read this book. Um, I really kind of hate myself a little bit for loving such a hyped book, but it was so good. It's so full of tropes. It is so um, exactly of the time right now. It's so to market for what is working, what is selling. I can completely see why it's hyped so much. Um, and I may even do a class, a bonus class. I think the that we're going to do this class early next year because it was so good. I will actually endeavour to reread it. And if that is not an endorsement from me, I don't know what is because I do not reread. So uh, yeah, Fourth Wing is like uh, Maverick meets How to Train Your Dragon. uh, And I mean, there are dragons, like what else do you want? (laughs) Just go and read the fucking book. Okay, in personal news and updates then, we are a couple of weeks out from Vegas. I got the... um, day wrong last week when I told you about the meetup. I said it was Monday. It is not Monday. It is Sunday night. We are doing a rebel meet on Sunday night. Uh, Don't worry. I know a couple of you aren't going to be there. That is not a problem. Uh, You can, I will be there all week. (laughs) So you will find me. Uh, Just come and say hello if you can't come to the rebel meet. If you can come to the rebel meet, I think we're meeting between I don't know, it's seven or eight. I can't quite remember. Um, But please just drop me an email. Let me know. Uh, One of the patrons in the Slack group is doing an amazing job at organising it. And so uh, most of the details are there. So once they're kind of finalised, I uh, can let you know. But if you drop me an email, I will pop you on a list to make sure that uh, you know when and where to go and be. So in uh, in other news and updates then, I have finished outlining the new book. It is the first book in my vampire series. I am just trying to pin down the first sentence and I think I will, so today is Thursday the 19th of October and I think I'm going to start writing tomorrow. Uh, I have, I'm like a an inch away from completing the Vegas talks. I just need to finish up uh, writing the words. So I've kind of written it in my brain already. Uh, when I create the visuals and the slide decks, I, I sort of write it in my brain. And because uh, normally I just teach without 
having written the words, but I feel because obviously this is a really important uh, 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 presentation or keynote, I, I need to write the words as well so that I can kind of try to remember, like remember and memorize those words. So I am now writing it as well, but to all intents and purposes, it's it's more or less done now. So it's just about practice now. And of course, I'm going to be teaching two classes as well, one on unlikable characters and one on prose in the market, which will be super fun. And then um, in other stuff, I have been assessing my slide decks, creating course structures, just kind of working on that and trying to figure out when and how I'm going to do stuff, how many books I'm going to be writing next year. I, I'm going to try again to write a nonfiction next year, but again, I do need to input a bit more. Um, and uh, also setting up a direct store. I obviously have a direct store right now for eBooks, but I want to uh, switch it up, make it more comprehensive, have paperbacks. I'm thinking about doing uh, a special signed edition that I will ship from uh, Mahos. Uh, next year uh, for the new series so yeah I'm just kind of looking at all different kinds of things uh, like that a lot of planning a lot of thinking um, trying to find the right planner to help me do that thinking and business uh, planning for next year so I'm, I'm yeah getting buzzed and excited for next year I always feel really bad for like the last quarter of the year because my brain is already on to next year uh, but still I'm super excited to start writing this new book it, it the outline is way more comprehensive than anything else I've ever done and so I don't know if that means it's going to come out at the same the same word count but like maybe it's a slightly different story because there's a lot of world building or whatever or if it just means it's going to be a longer book I have a feeling it's going to be longer I have given myself more time because I have a feeling that it's longer uh but yes I am literally like my happy place is drafting so getting back to drafting makes me happy <laughs> so I'm super excited for that so I think that is all I will say on that. The rebel of the week is Emma. Emma says, this is a short baby rebel story. When my sister was little, maybe four or five, she and my dad were walking down the street when he spotted a dog poop on the sidewalk ahead. He gently steered her away, but as they came abreast with it, my sister, discovering unexpected talents as a gymnast, took a sidestep so big it might have been a split and walked right into the odor and pile of <laughs> oh no to this day my dad will swear up and down that she did it on purpose that was not the ending I was expecting I have to say that is hilarious um oh also your poor dad having to clean it up afterwards that's too funny Okay, if you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. Once again, I've had my little note from Becca to say that we are low on these stories. So please send in your story. Doesn't even have to be your re rebellion. It can be somebody else's rebellion. It can be something big, something small, or something in between. You can email your Rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. Please don't sit on those stories. Just send them in. Uh, welcome and thank you very much to Cara Claire, brand new patron, and a big thank you to all of my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content, uh, such as the Slack community group, we had a bonus masterclass last night for the rebel uh, lord or emperor, whatever it is, patrons, uh, which was on the lies of Loch Lamora. Our next class is Dark Academia, and that will be on December the 6th. And then in January, we're going to be doing a masterclass 
on number one Amazon bestsellers, we're going to do trad versus indie. And I'm pretty sure we're going to do fourth wing for that. And then an indie author who's hit number one as well. And we're going to look comprehensively at marketing pros like their whole kind of system and platform um you also get access to things like uh poison and prose sessions where we write i will answer your questions and movie nights and 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 so if you want to join you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black okay this episode is sponsored by kobo writing life so i'm going to read out some information about kobo and then we'll get on with the episode This episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. Right now, digital books are reaching more people than ever and libraries are becoming an integral part of that. In 2021, top digital library systems powered by Overdrive loaned 500 million books, an increase on of 16% on 2020. That is half a billion book loans, which means a lot of happy library readers. You can easily reach readers through Kobo Writing Life. All you need to do is go to the rights and distribution section of your book, click yes to overdrive and enter a library price. Your book will then be available to librarians to purchase for multi-loan use, but also for a one-time checkout option. Distributing with KWL means you're not paying any aggregator fee and you'll earn 50% on every library sale. If you're interested in taking part in library promotions, email KWL's dedicated author care team at writinglifeatcobo.com and they'll add you to their mailing list. And don't forget to tell your readers that they can now pick up your books in libraries. If you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social. Create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. And last thing, as this episode airs, I am just a day away from launching the final book in the Girl Game series, A Game of Deceit and Desire. So if you like steamy fantasy, if you like a little bit of spice with your magic, then you're going to love this book. I'm going to read the blurb and then uh, I will put the links in the show notes to uh, the book and then I will get on with the episode. So, A Game of Deceit and Desire. Can love survive when trust is the rarest magic of all? Bella Blythe, master of lattice magic, is determined to win the runic games. If only her greatest rival, Remy Reed, would get out of the way. For years, they one-upped each other in competitions, jobs, and their apprenticeships, until a single kiss changed everything. With the biggest competition of their lives ahead of them, they're going to have to trust each other. A futile task when they're both harbouring secrets filled with betrayal. With a reputation and a relationship at risk, they're left with an impossible choice. Do they want to win a competition or a heart? Two women, two betrayals, and a romance that will rewrite their destiny. This is a steamy lesbian fantasy romance with rivals to lovers, forbidden romance, only one bed, found family, forced proximity, and a ton of spice. 18 plus readers only. This is the final book in the Girl Games trilogy. Okay, let's get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am 
besides myself excited because I have an in real life friend, somebody I've known forever coming on the show. Today, Icy Cedric is joining me. Icy hails from the frozen north of England. She writes gothic tinged fantasy novels and gothic short stories. When she's not writing fiction, she's blogging about folklore and podcasting, legends and the supernatural. Icy runs the fabulous folklore podcast to accompany her blog, bringing you slices of fab folklore in 15 minutes or less. Hello and welcome. Hello. We have known each other for a really long time. A really long time. Yeah, because you've, you've known me since before I published. Yeah. So I'm trying That's to think. Mad. Yeah, it is mad. I don't even know um, what year. I don't... So for context... <laughs> rather than me just intellecting live on air with silence. Um, so I see and I know each other through blogging. And I blogged for a long time before I did the podcast. And I used to run events called the Bloggers Bash, where I would put on an event and we'd all get together. And it was a whole load of fun. But I can't even remember what years they were. I feel like it may have been like 2013. Sure oh, I don't think it was that far back. I, I'm pretty... Maybe the awards were... Mm. But the awards might have been that early, but I don't know if the meetup was, but it was pretty early because that's when I started writing with intent to publish. Yeah. I'm going to have to have a look and, and see like back on the blog to see like what years they were. Um, but anyway, other than talking about our long potted history, um, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you and how you got to where you are today? And I guess like about your amazing PhD and just all about you and kind of what inspired you to write this book. Oh, this is a bit where it's like you sit there and go, everything's just gone out of my head. Um, I won't bother with the whole like how I got into writing fiction things. So I don't necessarily think it's that interesting because it's just did it since I was a child. Um, the folklore bit, on the other hand, I think is a bit more uh relevant i suppose because that's obviously what the book's about and i'd gotten into folklore i think i could almost date it to when i was 10 um because mum would gone to a stately home and obviously like you can't move in the northeast without falling over a stately home of some description and we'd gotten one of those books and i know which one it was it was more ghosts and legends of northumbria so i got the sequel first and then eventually went back and got Ghosts and Legends of Northumbria. And you can buy them for like 80p on Amazon um, if you get a secondhand copy. And I was just absolutely fascinated by all these tales of like ghosts and fairies and um, dragons and all sorts of cool stuff. You know, everything that like a, a 10 year old thinks is cool, in other words. And um, and then I kind of just sort of like kept collecting them everywhere I went. And I didn't really realize it was actually a thing until Folklore Thursday started on Twitter. Um, like the hashtag and every Thursday people would then share folklore with that tag which was hilarious when Taylor Swift released an album called Folklore on a Thursday um, you can imagine no oh yeah. my god yeah um, and um, so we ended up obviously booked up you know would would share sort of bits and pieces about um, themes and so on that um, the founders would set and I'll sometimes host them and so on and then it was just for that I used to write blog posts about folklore um, to share on the Thursday and then um, eventually I think oh, actually no I'm not saying eventually it was in the beginning of 2019 I'd read a book by Pamela I want to say Wilson 
And she was saying in it that if you've been blogging for X amount of time, you should ideally like add another content format. So I thought, well, I'll do audio versions. So like, you know, it's available if someone would rather listen than than read. And then just for a laugh one day, I was like, oh, I know, I'll just like submit the RSS feed for those to iTunes and like see what happens. And then I was like, oh, okay, now I have a podcast. Oops. Um, and that's how fabulous folklore was born. It was a total accident. Um and then um, that then led eventually to DK got in touch with me and they were like, oh, we'd like to do this folklore book. Would you like to write it? So, and so sorry, for listeners, DK is a publisher. Darling Kindersley, to give yeah. them their full name. Yeah. And they approached you because of your podcast. Yes. That is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and that is amazing. It's, it, it's hilarious because of the fact that it's like, you always kind of like, hope something like that will happen. And then when it does, you're like, oh, cool. Like, I wasn't just completely off my head or whatever, thinking that that would be awesome one day. Um, and, um, and yeah, so they already had the concept in mind, um, although it, its name did change um, during it. But then it sort of, the scope kind of changed once we started actually working on it. And then it was a question of choosing these rebellious figures. And... We say rebellious, but they're not like rebellious in like the rebel without a cause kind of sense of the term. These are figures from folklore from six continents. Obviously, Antarctica, for obvious reasons, hasn't got any. Uh, there'll be somebody going, well, actually, now they're listening yes. to that. But as far as I know, there isn't any in Antarctica. And they are characters who kind of sit in the in-between. So none of them are fully malevolent. None of them are... Well, a couple of them are, are, are like good, but they're not sort of, you know, these benevolent fairy godmothers handing stuff out left, right and centre. And they're figures where there's a lot of ambiguity about them. So even when you have quite a, a sort of almost scary figure who you wouldn't want to cross paths with, at the same time, if you kind of follow the rules of where they are, they'll kind of leave you alone. So in a lot of cases, it's very much about like, you know, bear in mind the consequences of your actions, and it's those kind of figures that are actually a lot more interesting. So, so the title of your book is Rebel Folklore. Where did the title come from? Because obviously, I love it. <laughs> it was really funny. It came from DK, and the, the, when the uh, when they sent the email saying what it was going to be called, I think you were the first person I thought of, and I thought Sasha's going to love this. Yeah. Oh my goodness me! When I saw that email come through to say that it was launching, I literally was like one click by <laughs> and then emailed you and was like all right get on my fucking podcast right now <laughs> yeah it, 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 was just, it was quite funny because I did sort of think well I know like the rebel so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness me I love it so much okay let's dive into the topic how do you differentiate between what folklore is and what mythology is? Is there a difference? Is there not a difference? Like how how can writers leverage both of these things into their writing if there is a difference? There is a, there is a difference, I think. And that probably somebody has an academic definition, but generally the way that they seem to show up is mythology is kind of that thing where it's being codified in some sense. So it may be, you know, with... Um, you know, a lot of the Norse mythology tends to come from the prose Eddas. A lot of the Greek mythology tends to come from a certain set of writers' work. 
and there's a sense of it not necessarily it being fixed, but that someone's written it down and gone like, this is what we're going to consider the mythology. And yes, it changes over time. I mean, anyone who's ever looked at Egyptian mythology is like, yes, that that changes quite substantially. But there's still been some consensus at some point on what each of these stories mean. The advantage of that for a writer is that you've got established sources that you can go back to and have a look at. And you can almost choose which version of something you prefer. Obviously, you get some authors who who will give like the other side of the story. And I'm thinking of like Madeleine Miller here with um her book on Kirka, where it's like the other side of like, well, what would it actually be like being stuck on this island when like Odysseus rocks up? Because, you know, he always kind of comes across as a certain type of character. Folklore, on the other hand, sort of feels a lot of cases like it's its own beast. So you can have a difference in a belief like from one town to the next you can have a difference in belief sort of across a couple of, you know, a couple of decades or whatever, because it's stuff that people were using and interacting with on a, like on a regular basis. So because it's kind of, and it's that thing, like anyone who ever has to design products knows that the minute you give them to people, people just do their own thing with them and folklore is kind of the same. So you've got this set of beliefs, superstitions, practices, rituals, and so on traditions and that people have just gone, well, I like a bit of that and a bit of that, so now I'm going to have this instead. So folklore becomes this sort of, it's really difficult trying to untangle it to get to sort of what the true thing is because that's kind of not what the point is. It's about what did people believe or how did they pass knowledge on as well, um, whereas mythology tends to occupy like a slightly different kind of space but there is some overlap so it's not like you have to pick one of the other necessarily so for example vampires are more folklore because there's different regional like um stories and tales that surround them ah okay okay that really helps i wonder is there any religious connection with mythology versus folklore or are there some kind of religious connections with folklore as well i would say that our connections with um both of them. Um, okay. And part of the, the main reason I say that for religion and folklore is there's quite a lot of Christianity sneaks into particularly British folklore. Oh, um, but then you also you also have the existence of like folk saints as well, um, who are really interesting. And, Literally just learned something new. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's really funny. There's a whole series of like unofficial um sort of saints um and some of them have taken on like really huge significance i'm thinking like santa muerte in um mexico but then you've even got some in the uk and where some of them have their own shrines and stuff and they're supposed to have done these miracles and whether they did or not again kind of beside the point doesn't really matter it's the fact that people kind of put enough power into this belief that it's sort of again, takes on a life of its own, which in and of itself is quite interesting. And you can just make folk saints up if you're a writer because, you know, you can just kind of like look at the existing ones and sort of, you know, give them that background. And I think the advantage with making your own up is you're sort of not stepping on anybody's toes. So you can have a look at something like really bizarre about your town and be like, what kind of like folk saint would this town generate? Which in some places will be really, really unusual. So, so let's go a bit more into that and like where and how do writers start with this? Because I would never have even thought that like to look at a town and go, what kind of 
saying can can you get connected to this so like give me a framework almost to 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 get me into the framework of looking at things as folklore because I'm actually world building right now so I would love to be able to take all the tips that you're about to tell me (laughs) and use them in my new series um it's funny you say that because I do have at some point my book on how to write using folklore I will finally get that finished at some point um but like actual folklore books kind of got in the way Um, The first thing I would always recommend is to actually start reading folklore. Um, So pick something you're interested in and start reading it. So it might be the folk tales from a particular place. Um, It might be in like all around the UK, like each county pretty much has like a a folk tales of, and the History Press, I think, do quite a lot of them. Um, There's obviously, if you look on Amazon, if you put like a country and folk tales in, there will probably be um a folk tales collection um and the reason why i'm saying to start with where you live is you can then go and visit these places um and i think there's something very different about the experience of a place when you can like go and take pictures and like obviously as long as it's not like you know breaking and entering but you know i suppose you know rebel folklore and everything <laughs> say, the number of buildings i've climbed into not not necessarily with permission is substantial (laughs) (laughs) but then you you start looking at things and the thing I always do for me personally is I look at the what if of something so for example I was doing an an episode from my Patreon supporters about like the folklore of dressmaking who knew that something so simple had that much weird stuff associated with it and there was a superstition and I actually found it in an episode not an episode an issue of the Newcastle Daily Chronicle, I think it was called then. So like my local paper from 1899, and there was a superstition that people thought if an undertaker left like a pin in the like burial clothes of a person, then the dead would like walk at night. So maybe, maybe I went, but what happens if the undertaker wanted them to walk at night? And then I wrote a short... My question is, how would they know the pin was left in there? Well, it's easily done. Um, as someone who has done dressmaking, it is easily done to leave a pin in something. You generally no, no, no. find out when you sit down. Yeah, but if they're buried with the pin, how do they know the pin has been left in there? Well, this was in the days when people used to like leave people out for like a day or so, like at wakes and things before they would oh. bury them. Oh, yeah, nowadays, right. nowadays somebody would notice, you would hope. Um, but yes, yeah, so obviously this is like 19th century. And I was like, well, what happens if somebody wanted the dead to get up at night and start wandering about what kind of person would do that and why. And you then kind of follow the the, the stuff backwards almost to create your, your character. So like I had, I ended up writing a short story from the point of view of a woman whose I think it was her uncle had died. So she's staying in his house and she hears these noises at night and she's like, Oh my God, what is that? And goes downstairs and finds him like hopping around in his burial shroud kind of in the living room. So she manages to guide him back into the coffin she spots the pin and takes it out. Um, so, of course, obviously, it then stops him wandering around. So, of course, the undertaker's then rather annoyed about this. He's going to have to then create another sort of um, almost an like ego kind of character. Um, and that was all just from that one superstition. So it's just working backwards, really. That is amazing. I find it so fascinating how people twist the myths and the and the folklore like i have read a number of retellings this year 
in particular of um, mythology retellings. And I just like, how do you know what elements to choose? How do you know which bits to take and which bits to leave? I think with the retellings, one thing that I've noticed is there's been this particular sort of uh, emphasis on doing like a, a feminist retelling. So it's taken the story and going, right, well, we're going to assume this has got a certain level of bias in it because it was written by men. Um, so what would the logical assumption then be looking at this from the 21st century? Um, and kind of then and part of my problem with that is the fact that you are then trying to impose a 21st century mindset onto something that was written thousands of years ago. It, while some of the efforts can be good and I appreciate the energy behind them, I'm not necessarily sure um, how helpful they are. However, as an act of fiction, it can be a really interesting way to then give you an alternative to com- that then compare with the original. So I think a lot of the time it's 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 choosing what your initial lens is going to be. So if you were going to do, um, I don't know, like retellings of maybe the Norse myths, for example, you might then choose to just simply set them now so what would have to be true for those things to exist? When I say things, obviously, I mean the setting, like the scenarios. For those to exist now, what would have to be true? And so, you know, you would then be kind of trying to figure out how the Norse gods would then fit into, like, 21st century, wherever your location was. Um, and there was actually a, oh, it was a really good book, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, and it was actually using... Um, like the Orisha, so the Yoruban and West African deities. And it is so, so good. Um, And he's kind of then placed them into a 21st century setting. And it's really interesting to then see how kind of they interact with this this world that he's built. And it's absolutely fabulous world building. I'm really annoyed at myself that I can't remember the name of it. It might come oh, to you on. as we talk. <laughs> it might be David Mordo, God Hunter. Okay. That that sounds about right. Um. But yeah, it's really, really interesting how he's taken that mythology and then kind of added it into his own world building, where this is a world where gods exist. So how would these gods behave? So Katie Roberts done a very spicy version of the Greek gods, but she set it in, I guess, like a New York style. And so the Hudson River has become like the River Styx. And so it's fascinating to look at, like, I love that you've said that because I'd never even thought that that's what she'd done but that's exactly what she's done is she's looked at how would it look today like what would that what would that be like and yeah this is I love this because I'm gonna go away and, and like just literally fall down an input wormhole and then like hopefully that's gonna inspire loads of stories and stuff because I would love to do a retelling like for sure I would love to do like I'd love to do that um yes okay let's talk about the research then. So let's say I'm going to go down this rabbit hole of input and binge reading and all the rest of it. You've mentioned um, reading local folk folklore and um, having a scour on Amazon. Like what else can we do to research? Like how on earth do you find all of these different snippets and tidbits of like folklore stuff? Because it, it you are an endless font of knowledge. <laughs> how? <laughs> Um, oh, I've honestly, like, if anybody said to me, like, what is your overriding character trait above anything else? It would have to be curiosity. Um, and my mom said I've been like this ever since I was little. We've got a fabulous phrase. Um, I don't know if it's just in our family or if it's in the Northeast in general, but she always liked to say that, um, I always had to know the far end of a fart and which way the wind blew it. 
Um, so, I love, <laughs> okay, that's definitely a northern one. <laughs> yeah. And um, but so I think what I like to try and start with is books, primarily because I love books, and also because there's at least some degree, you hope, degree of um, like fact checking in them. And obviously, for certain books, like I've got one book, um, uh, the Oxford Book of Superstitions or Oxford Dictionary of Superstitions, one of the two. And the, the the it's the reputation of the people who've put it together. Um, they are excellent folklorists. So it's kind of looking at um sort of like recommended books. And then also then a lot of the time I'll then have a look at their bibliography to see where they found information and if I can get access to that. I mean, obviously, because I'm doing my, my PhD at Sterling, I do obviously have access to stuff through their uh, online library in particular. Um but then obviously beyond that, you can then go down the route of podcasts, obviously many of which are free. And I would say in, among a lot of the folklore podcasters, at least the ones I've listened to, there's a really good degree of research and sort of critical thinking. And it's coming across a source and being like, it, does this fit in with what I already know? Um, is it likely to be nonsense or is it likely to be, um, you know, sort of like somebody else's agenda? Or is it likely to be just this person spoken to somebody that nobody else has so that they've got a different perspective? Because this is a trouble with folklore. Some of the 19th century stuff, you do have to, you look at it and go, well, it's nice that someone wrote it down, but kind of what what was the end goal? Why did they do this? Were they trying to preserve it because it was twee and quaint? Or did they genuinely think it was important to preserve it? Um, so, for example, um, in the Northeast, because obviously I do quite a lot of Northumbrian folklore, like, in case the accent didn't give it away. And there's a particular guy, William Henderson, and he's got this massive book of Northeast folklore. But he wrote it for the Folklore Society because he was a massive nerd about folklore himself and he wanted to preserve this stuff before it was forgotten. So at least I know his reason was he was collecting this stuff not to poke fun at it, but because he wanted to share it. And you know, so you, you don't always find that necessarily. But I would say archive.org is a good place to have a look. Um, there are quite a few, um, like the more sort of like 19th century, early 20th century books are on there. Um, Rachel at the Fairy Tales Folklore and, oh, I always get the name of the podcast wrong. Is it Fairy Tales Folklore and Food? Um, she uses, she has a look at quite a lot of um, like antique cookbooks and things. And it's amazing the ideas you can get from those. Um and podcasts are a good one to go down. And only then, once you've looked at all of that stuff, then I would say you can start Googling it. Um, and the reason why <laughs> the I would sort of... of Google. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's mostly because um, quite a lot of websites just regurgitate the same thing and they all just kind of copy each other. So you're then not quite sure where the original information came from. So if you, say, did a bit of reading in some books... And then you went and had a look at, um, you know, the first 10 results on Google and they're all kind of saying different things, but that all sound right. Then you can kind of take that and go, oh, OK, this is extra information. Whereas if they're all just saying the same thing, it's not very helpful. Have you ever have you ever cooked anything from any of the folklores? Uh, I haven't. I have done some of the um, different divination practices, though, because I'm such a geek about stuff like that. So, like, a really simple one that, like, literally anyone can do who has physical books is you can do this thing called bibliomancy. 
And this used to be a huge thing that families would do on New Year's Day with the Bible of all things. And you basically ask your question and then you, you choose a book, ask your question, just let the book fall open wherever. And then the first thing that you look at when you open it is the answer to your question. Um, so you can imagine if you did that with the Bible, if you fall in Revelation, that could get harmful <laughs> quite quickly. Um, but uh, So just things like that. And, then, and I think there's been like some of the mad love divination things. I've had a go at them as well. Oh, my God. That is so cool. And I am literally going to do that like after we get off the podcast. <laughs> because I think that sounds so cool. Okay, what are some of your favourite lesser known like folklore traditions that writers might find intriguing to go off and, and do some research on? I would say um, there's a really easy one to get started with and not necessarily lesser known, but an easy one is stuff to do with plants um, because most people are going to have plants in their in their vicinity and if you're setting something in the uk in a particular time frame for example you can find out what plants were native at that time so you can and you can find out like whether something would be blossoming at that time of year and so on and then you can find out how people used it so you can go from something really simple like people making um jelly out of hawthorn berries um right through to um you know sort of people um, making uh, rowan crosses out of rowan wood to ward off witches, you know. So there's lots of different things that um, people would do to interact with um, plants. But yeah, again, I'm going to come back to the food ones because of the fact that there's some really mental ones to do with bread. Um, where like people would like they'd, they'd put the cross on them apparently to like stop the devil from sitting on them and so it's not it's to make sure that they rise properly but it you know there's a, it's things like that and I think the food ones because it's with everyday items that people would have in the house um if your characters then engaging with stuff like that like food is one of the things that people do bond over and you recognize it because it's such a a human thing to do so I would definitely say food folklore. Um, and plant folklore are the two easiest ones. They're not necessarily the lesser known, but you can get quite lesser known stuff within them, but they're quite accessible. What's your favourite rebel from the book? Oh, God. Um, I absolutely love the psychopomps. I'm not going to lie. Um, I love psychopomps in general. I just think they're a really interesting concept. Um, but I think... And tell and me like what Robin, they are. Psychopomps are, and again, you can have fun with these as a writer because literally you can make anything be a psychopomp. They are the figures that turn up at the point that you die and guide the soul wherever it needs to go next. Oh, so, wow. Um, like Charon in... in Yeah. Mm. Or um, I think Stephen King did one, and I want to say you sparrows. Was it the dead zone? Um or it might be in the dark half. It was one of the two. Somebody, sparrows were involved. Um, crows are often psychopomps. Um, obviously, then in, in mythology, you've got the likes of Anubis and Hermes um, are both psychopomps. The Grim Reaper himself. So, like, Pratchett did the best one ever with Death in the Discworld books. Um, My favourite so, books, like, of his. And I think, because obviously the two that I've got in the book, the um, Chong Sung Saja from Korea, I love the fact that he's just dressed like a civil servant. <laughs> like it's 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 just such like a it's just a, a thing that happens. It's such a normal function that this 
this figure turns up and, and takes you on to the next sort of phase, as it were. And I really like the fact that, and I said this on another podcast, like to me, I always feel like that point when you've, you've you know, you've crossed over must be terrifying. It'd be like the first day at school. You don't know what's going on. You don't know where anything is. Um, you'd, you'd feel quite overwhelmed. So I love the idea that there's someone who's kind of like, you know, standing there like in an airport with a piece of paper with your name on it, like telling you where you need to go next. And I really love the idea of that concept. Um, so you're not just kind of wandering around the afterlife, like you're stuck in sort of Tesco or whatever. Um so, but are they my favourites in the book? I mean, I love them, but I don't know. It's kind of difficult because there's so many really interesting figures in there. It's quite difficult to to pick. If I feel like it would be mean to pick a favourite, I know. But also, we are rebels. So, <laughs> okay. What do you think? Or what mistakes do you see writers making when they try to start including folklore and mythology into their books? I must admit, I've never necessarily seen it done badly. Um, anytime I've, as I say, well, I've either seen people create their own mythology, but that it's based on an existing one, but it's still their own. That's fine. That works. And I've seen people um, borrow quite a lot of the plant law, for example, uh, appears in, in books. And obviously that's, that's at least rooted in historical tradition. So that one uh, is fine. I think the, the only one that I think bothers me uh is possibly when you start going down the route of fairy law um and i think part of the problem and this isn't necessarily the author's fault but sometimes people borrow from like what's become established in fairy fiction and they mistake that for fairy law and it's like no you're better off actually going to the original source um because some people have made up entire world building things using fairy law um but that it's still fundamentally their interpretation of it. It's not actual folklore. So I think it's it's one of those things where in, if you're going to include fairies, actually go and have a look at some of the original stories because some of them are brutal, you know. So it's like just for your own sort of interest, like have have a look at those rather than just going, oh, I've got to have the Sealy Court and the Unsealy Court in there. It's like, well, no, because they're actually quite specific parts of, I want to say it's Scottish fairy law. So it's like, you know, have have a look at the law first and then figure out what you want to do with it from there rather than just riffing on what's already in fiction. Yeah. What are some of so what are some of the things that maybe are like the biggest differences for you in fairy in fairy folklore? Um one of the one of the big ones is the assumption that fairies would be good and benevolent. Oh. <laughs> it's like no. Um the um a lot of the time in the folklore it's like people are trying their best to placate the fairies or to try and avoid their attention um people aren't trying to court them expecting fairies to do nice things for them for no reason um and i understand that obviously there's going to be people who are going to want to write like a twilight kind of saga but rather than having vampires they're going to want to have fairies in them and so on well but sarah j what... mass is a great example of that yeah and i mean it it, it, it can work um, but again, I think it's just we'll think through what 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 are the ramifications going to be, um, because one of them's going to have to live in a world that isn't theirs. So how is that going to work? So I think it's the because I mean, if, for example, what well, the reason why I'm saying that is because there's a really famous fairy motif that you get all over the place, um, and it's the the motif of the fairy midwife, 
and it's this this midwife who's a human and she's woken up in the dead of night and taken on horseback to what to her appears to be this really quite comfortable um fancy house or, or something of that description so some kind of nice comfortable dwelling and she's taken in and she attends the the mother who's about to give birth and the birth happens and everything's fine everything's good you know the mother's healthy the baby's healthy everything's like textbook delivery um and then she's asked to anoint the baby's eyes with this ointment but under no circumstances can it touch her own. So she does what she's told. And then because you get tired, you forget, she rubs her eye, maybe something gets in it. And then out of that eye, she can then see through the fairy glamour. And she can then see that she's actually like in a cave. And maybe these beautiful people are actually not um, as attractive as, as it had first appeared. Or maybe like the fabulous bed that the woman was lying on is now like a bed of heather or, or something like that. Um and but the fairy or the, the midwife rather leaves the, the the fairy husband often takes her home again gives her her money so she's paid for her job and everything you know like that that that's not the problem it's the fact that then when she's usually at a market or some kind of public place later she spots one of the fairies stealing from the stalls and obviously she doesn't realize that she's the only one who can see them and then when the fairy realizes that she can see them um, they come over and invariably they'll say like, "Oh, which eye can you see me with?" Uh-oh. And then she'll she'll point to the eye, not thinking, and the fairy blows in her face. And then sometimes the the, the character's blinded in both eyes. Sometimes it's just the one with the ointment, and then they lose their sight in that eye. Um, and you when you look at stories like that, you just sort of think, "Well, what would the ramifications be if you then had like a human and a fairy get together?" Like how's how's that going to work? Like, is she going to? I'm presuming the the human's probably going to be the woman. Is she always going to have to see with the glamour on, or is she going to get to see with it off? And and you could probably do something really interesting with it. It's just keeping kind of things like this in mind, really. Yeah, like you, I'm already my head's off with a forbidden romance right there. <laughs> I love it. This I I could literally listen to you all evening because it's you. You are just. It's like spark idea, spark idea, spark idea, spark idea. This is like ideation, like catnip, basically. Um, Okay. Is there ever like any issue around like misrepresenting cultures or like maybe misappropriation? I don't know. Like folklore is very new to me. So yeah, I don't know. Are there any ever, 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 are there any ever, wait, (laughs) Are there ever any issues misrepresenting traditions, cultures? Like when should we not take from other cultures in terms of like story elements and folklore elements? I think um, it's a difficult one. And I know I was actually, when I did my folklore and fiction uh, workshop, there was um, uh, an American attendee and she actually gave some really good feedback because someone asked that question because this person had written um, a story that involved characters from quite a lot of different traditions. Some of them were fine um, because they were like, you know, when I say like an open tradition, they were the kind of thing where like they are, you know, quite well publicized and, you know, people are aware of them and so on. But then there were other characters from traditions, which generally speaking are quite closed. So they're from people of that culture and the, 
the 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 woman given the advice had sort of said like you know if if generally speaking if it's not of your culture then you know try try not to include it because they'll probably be an equivalent in your own culture and you can use that one instead now that was one of the problems i was worried about when i did the folklore book because i was like well i'm doing global folklore obviously like my ancestry is very heavily european so you know, I've, I, and I, I didn't want to kind of step on anyone's toes. So I actually made sure I asked people and gathered research from people from those cultures so that at least I was, you know, trying to represent them in the most accurate way possible. So I think that would be one thing that you can do. Obviously, speak to people of that culture. Um, if you do want to use one that's not yours, um, obviously, employ sensitivity readers and things like that. Um, and it's a, it, it's one of those things as well where I would always ask sort of if you're wanting to use something for inspirational purposes, for example, um, what makes you look to the, this other culture or other country even? Because it might just simply be like you might go, oh, I'm really interested in French folklore, for example. What would make you look there? Like what was it that kind of drew your attention there in the first place? And can you find something similar uh, closer to home again because like i said before it's nice if you can go and visit places so sometimes it can work in the fact that you know you might actually live in uh, a country because i read some books and again i can't remember the author's name because my brain fog is horrific but she lives in nairobi so quite a lot of her books have figures from african folklore in them but she lives there she's like steeped in this and I had this conversation with a comic artist um, who'd done a graphic novel about a story um, that was from um, sort of his part of South Africa. And while sort of his ancestry, again, is European, because he'd sort of like grown up in that country, hearing that story, he tried to represent it as well as he could. And he actually went to the area where it was set and actually spoke to the locals. And they were really pleased that somebody was actually telling the story and was taking an interest like beyond the tourist version of it. So it's one of those things where if you can speak to people who are of a particular culture, or as I say, it could just simply be country as well, even region, because it can vary by region to region, then that will be a good place to start. And then if you can't do that because it's not accessible, then maybe sort of consider something that is a bit more accessible. Um, and you can all sort of leave that stuff for kind of later. Okay. Do you have any recommendations for fiction stories that are, you know, perhaps some of the bigger ones that have included folklore or or are based on folklore or mythology that if listeners were interested, they could go and read some how see how authors have translated it into fiction the absolute best example and we've already mentioned him is terry pratchett um the fact he actually had jacqueline simpson like one of the names in folklore as i think from what mark norman was telling us she was like his advisor um and it's just the really subtle way that he blends folklore into his own world building so a folklorist kind of looks at it and goes, oh, I know what that means. And then everybody else just reads it as a clever bit of world building. And I think he does it in such a really subtle yet effective way that it kind of kind of anchors his world building in a sense of what's then familiar to us, even though there's nothing really actually familiar about a lot of the places that he describes in his book. So I think if if you're not sure, he's a really, really good one to start with. 
Um, and I think I don't really need any excuse to recommend Terry Pratchett to people. I had no idea. I've read a lot of his. I'm, well, I've probably read five, six of his books, which is a lot for me to read of that, of like one author. I, t- I tend to not go through series. I love the first in series and then like I tend to trail off. But yeah, I think I've read two of the three death ones. I don't know. Maybe I've read all of them. I can't remember. I read them when I was younger. And I've definitely read the first few books in the series as well. But I had no idea that it was that he took so much from folklore. That's amazing. I'm going to have to go back and like have a read again and like see if I can like see any things. Um, and okay, so what is your favorite folklore tale, myth or story? Oh, um, again, this is like, you know, choosing choosing a favorite child. Not that I have children, but I imagine this is how hard it would be. Um, the trouble is my brain again always goes to Northumbrian stories because obviously it's what I grew up on. Um, and, but then I'm like, do I like them just because they're local or do I like them? Actually, I'll go with this one because there's variations of it in lots of different places. So it's not just in this area. I just think it's quite funny. And I can sort of see a lot of Geordie women doing this. Um, there's a place called Kalali Castle, which, um, it's where it's been built. It's like down in a dip. And as the story goes, the lord of the castle wanted to build it on a hill because obviously this part of the world um, has had a lot of fighting going on in it between the Scots and the English. Um, and for a long time, the English just didn't really want it, just kind of left it to its own devices. So there's quite a lot of need for fortified buildings um, in this area. So he wanted to build the the castle on the top of the hill where he'd have a better view, but she was like, no, that's too windy. I want to put comfort over practicality. You know, we'll ignore the the, the gender stereotype and uh, inheritance story. But and he tries to promise her like a garden and everything. She's like, a garden on top of a hill? Are you mad? I want put it down in the, like the veil. It'll be nicer. And he's like, no, I'm going to have it my way. So to stop the building work. Um, and the, they get relatively far and then pack it in for the day because obviously it's nighttime. And then they come back the next morning and everything they'd done the day before has been dismantled. And they're like, well, that's a bit annoying. So they redo everything, go away, come back the next day, everything's been dismantled again. And the Lord's obviously a bit annoyed about this because it's obviously going to add on to the construction costs. So he, um, I think if I remember correctly, I'm not sure if he waits or leaves one of his men. It depends on the version of the story, but somebody waits and sees what looks like a giant boar in some stories. Other times it's it's not really clear what he sees, but he basically um, sees this creature dismantling all the building work. And he think, my God, like this is like blocks of stone that's just taken apart like it's Lego. And there's a rhyme that goes with it. And again, because my brain's gone because I've been at work, I can't remember the rhyme, but he hears it saying this rhyme. And it basically tells him, like, you shouldn't be building it on the hill. You should be building it down in the valley. So in some versions of the story, it, he assumes this is the intervention of Satan. In other ones, he assumes it's the fairies. For whatever reason, he's then like, you know what, fine. I'll go and build the castle down in the vale. So obviously, because the castle then gets built where she wanted it, there's no more disturbances. And obviously, the general consensus is that she's somehow been in cahoots with someone um, 
to have the house built where she wants. And there's versions of this all over the place where building work keeps getting disrupted until eventually the building's built somewhere else and it still stands there today. And I, I just absolutely love that particular motif because it's, I don't know, there's something, there's something really manipulative at the heart of it, but then you kind of go, well, how do we know that it's not actually the fairies? Like, how do we know that someone's not trying to just, like, put up a gazebo in their back garden or something? Like, they would be quite annoyed. And then it always kind of makes me think, like, you know, you look at these giant infrastructure projects and things that, you know, the government are trying to do, and I'm like, maybe there's a reason why they keep getting held up. Maybe this is the modern equivalent of the tale of Kalali Castle. I, lo- I love that so much. I'm literally like riveted to every single word that you're saying. It, you reminded me that when I was little, my mum, we used to live about four hours from my grandparents and my grandparents lived on the south, south coast in Selsey. And we used to drive down there every weekend and we'd drive past a place called the Devil's Punch Bowl. Um, and I have no idea why it's called the Devil's Punch Bowl, but I bet you there's some folklore. So I am now going to go and Google and find out why it's called that and what the story is. But like, and yeah, so like, I think you've finally like given me the twig to be able to spot where those things are in order to be able to go um, and look for it. Um, Okay, two last quick questions before I ask you the ultimate question. Um, Vampires. Where do I start? I I am writing a vampire series. So what, where can I go and look for? So I already know a couple of things I've looked up. And um, so one of them was like this story about how one of the ways you can kill in air quotes, a vampire is to drop poppy seeds in a coffin or something, fill the coffin with poppy seeds or something, because they'll spend the rest of their eternity just trying to count all the poppy seeds. And it's funny because I was reading, um, I'm going to butcher the name. Gabriella Moreno Garcia? Certain Dark Things, anyway, was the book. And um, a vampire's in a store and, like, loads of candy things get dropped and Mm -hmm. um, the vampire has the urge to get on her knees and count them, but doesn't. And I was like, oh, God! (laughs) I I like got very excited about spotting this. Um, but yeah, what kind of vampire stuff should I, where do I focus my research? Um, I can actually recommend a book. Um, <gasps> and that, I also Googled it while we were talking because I couldn't remember the author's name. Um, it's The Vampire, A New History by Nick Groom. Um, and he basically, and obviously he takes into account a lot of the literary versions of them, but also where quite a lot of the folklore came from. Um, and he sort of obviously puts his focus on Eastern Europe and where a lot of the folklore came out of Eastern Europe. However, um, I've since discovered, um, I mean, I knew this anyway, because obviously they're Northern northern stories. We've got stories of like three of them in Northumberland, but they weren't called vampires at the time. They were like revenants or in some cases, I think they don't even have a name. Um, where they're just these, they're, they're, they're basically described a bit more like zombies. Um, and in the case of those ones, one of them, um, a young man just batters one to death with a spade, uh, which again just feels like that's what happens in northeast England. Um, Buffy would have been a very different program yeah. if it had been set up here. <laughs> um, and then um, there's also the legend of uh, the Croglin vampire, um, where I th- does he get shot? No. Um, the the Croglin ones in Cumbria, 
Um, and it was actually originally based on a, well, it was told by somebody who was already an author. So it's kind of, nobody knows if it was actually a genuine story or not. Um, and that one involves obviously the creature needing to get back to the, the tomb kind of um, away from daylight. So daylight is always a good one, apart from twilight, um, which is the thing that I, I've got a lot of problems with the Twilight books, but that whole, oh, yeah, they can go out in daylight, they just sparkle. I'm like, no, you've, you've actually <laughs> lost us at that point. That just makes no sense. Um, like, no apex predator would draw attention to themselves like that. Yeah. It, yeah. Just in, anyway. But they sparkle. They sparkle, I see. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, I, I, wish... I hate glitter, so that doesn't help. Um... <laughs> I wish everybody could have seen your expression then. It was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. there's also Irish vampires as well. Um, oh, oh. I'm going to go and Google that. Uh, oh. Or not Google. I'll go and look for a book first. Um, okay. And my last question before I ask the ultimate question. Do you know your Clifton strengths? And I feel like we've had this conversation once before, but do you know them? I can't even remember what they are. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> you kill me. <laughs> okay, you have to uh, you have to message me and let me know what they are. Um, okay, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. I'm going to have to. I, had, I had really had to think about this one. I looked at it and went, oh, because I'm not really massively rebellious by nature. Like, I'm contrary, yes. Whimsical, yes. Um, you know, we'll ask awkward questions in meetings just because it's funny. Um, not necessarily <laughs> I mean, that's kind rebellious. Of rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I mean, the thing is, put it this way: like in my office at work, I'm considered like neutral good, so it's like I'm not not necessarily. But then I sort of thought I am kind of rebellious in the fact that like all the writing advice is like writing a specific genre to make it easier to them. And every single book I've done with the exception of non-fiction, I've just gone, nah. And I've written something that's almost uncategorizable, and then it's like, I wonder why it doesn't sell. And it's like, that that would be my <laughs> uh, my sort of moment of uh, rebelliousness, just going, I'm going to ignore all of the good advice. I don't care how good it is. I'm just going to ignore it and write what I want to write. Why no. won't anyone buy it? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? Half of marketing is being able to describe it in a way that readers like understand so like for example your your necromancy book is like necromancy fantasy right like and it's just mm-hmm. about using and you've got mentor trope in there and you've got you know so like you can use all the all of the language even for books that are cross genre and you can you can still sell I think you can still sell them but anyway maybe I'm being too optimistic I don't know I feel like you can um especially because that series is fucking good um okay so would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you your books like your podcast anything else that you would like to add most things are on my website which is just icsedgwick.com and if anyone does like misspell sedgwick which happens more than i would like google will actually correct you which is quite funny it's like thanks google (laughs) um i'm on like all the all the platforms all the platforms except tiktok i refuse to do tiktok um um, I'm on all, I've got a username on there, but I don't, don't use it. Um, again, as IC Sedgwick. But the easiest way to find us is Fabulous Folklore, uh, which is on all the platforms for podcasts. But also, if you don't do podcast platforms, it's on YouTube as well, um, which I think they're actually they're turning off Google Podcasts soon, and it's going to all be under YouTube Music anyway. So, but um, 
if uh, if people find it easier just to listen through YouTube, then it's on there as well. So it's just Fabulous Folklore. I think it's Fabulous Folklore with IC on all the platforms, but Fabulous Folklore will get you there all the same. Perfect. And I did check at the beginning. I forgot to mention this. It, the first Bloggers Bash was 2015. So I, I suspect Bloody we probably, hell. yeah, I suspect we knew each other before that from the blog because that wasn't necessarily the first um voting year but that was the first meetup year so it is actually yeah, i think i went to the second one ah uh, okay okay yeah uh okay so thank you so much for your time today and of course a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons if you would like to get early access to all of the episodes you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black i'm sasha black you were listening to icy cedric and this was the rebel author podcast this week i'm joined by crystal craker and we're talking all about editing for clarity and sensory detail so join me next week for that don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher and when you have a moment please leave a review 